Hello, kindred spirits, and welcome to Modcast, the podcast of the Ella Montgomery Institute, broadcasting from the beautiful campus of the University of Prince Edward Island. We're so glad you've tuned in. This is Modcast Season 1, Episode 4. I am your host, Dr. Brenton Dickerson. In our quest to discover cutting-edge scholarship about the life and works of Lucy Ma Montgomery and join imaginative readers throughout the world, we welcome to the microphone our special guest, Dr. Trina Freever. Our conversation with Trina is a two-part episode, and this is part one. Trina S. Freever is an award-winning scholar and writer specializing in the intersections between oral storytelling, music, visual media, and print fiction. She holds a bachelor's degree in both English and psychology from the University of Michigan and master's and doctoral degrees from Michigan State University. A tenured professor turned fiction writer, Freever has presented her work at over 30 international conferences from Florida to France and has published her essays in an array of academic journals. In her work as a fiction writer, she creates fantasy fiction for a middle-grade audience, as well as the occasional young adult novel or literary short story for adults. She's an avid fangirl of all things Ellen Montgomery, Disney, Star Wars, The Dark Crystal, and The Mandalorian, and is currently obsessed with The Child, aka Baby Yoda. Trina's current projects include YourLMMontgomeryStory.com, which was featured in June 2020 on CBC. Trina, welcome to the Modcast. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here. <laughs> That's great. That's a nice bio. Did you catch the new Netflix prequel to The Dark Crystal? Oh, The Age of Resistance. Yes. Oh, I was waiting with bated breath for that to come out. I'm a huge fan of the Frouds, Wendy Froud, Toby Froud, Brian Froud. And so I. I was waiting for it almost, I think, a year in advance, you know, counting wow. the days. I mean, such a high, tall order, right, to, to such a pop culture iconic moment, and then to recreate it with new technologies a quarter century later, right? Well, and I may be going out on a limb saying this. Mm -hmm. You said you wanted cutting-edge scholarship, right? Um, <laughs> I actually thought it was better than the original. Oh, um, I thought the storytelling was better. I thought the writing was stronger. And um, and I thought the puppetry was every bit on par. I loved that they used puppets again, that it wasn't all CGI, that yeah. they did the blend of puppetry and CGI, and I thought they did it impeccably. Yeah, no, it's a, the, I mean, I love actually how the whole Jim Henson company has continued to develop in yes. their own roots. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. The work of Lisa Henson and Brian Henson, they're doing such interesting things. I don't know if you've caught this, but um, the Museum of the Moving Image in New York City has been doing some great broadcasts during quarantine of um, interviews with people who worked on The Dark Crystal was one of them that I watched. And another was... Uh, a Zoom cast with different puppeteers doing cutting edge puppetry. And I I just geek out over that kind of thing. I just loved that. Wow. Super cool. And actually that that actually during that whole kind of um, early isolation period, I was amazed how museums and 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 things like that throughout the world were so responsive so quickly to creating yes. great content online. And, yes. and kind of a good energy moving forward. Yeah. Well, of course, we've already gotten ourselves lost into the things that we love. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and but I mean, we love books, uh, and uh, one of the things that uh, we want to talk about here on the Modcast is uh, kind of a bookish 
podcast is what we're reading. And, and I'm actually reading Jane of Lantern Hill. And this is okay. uh, this is actually my first time reading this. And I don't know wh- why. There's something about maybe the 30s Montgomery I'm not as drawn to. but mm-hmm. uh, And I'm still, still in that early stages of the novel where Montgomery has done, done almost too good of a job to get us the detest all the adults <laughs> at 60 gay street you know so I'm, I'm i'm almost ready to chuck the book across the room but knowing that there's more there right so i, I i'm patient what what, if, what are you reading these days uh well sorry i got distracted thinking about jane of lantern hill because i was a, <laughs> a late reader of jane of lantern hill as well i only read it for the first time a few years ago and um but i love the scene with the lion that's a fantastic thing mm-hmm. and i also wanted to say um I actually don't think it's that far afield to be talking about Dark Crystal and Ella Montgomery, though I do find people look at me with wrinkled brows when they see the breadth of my work, because I write often sci-fi and fantasy, but I'm such a big like Montgomery and Disney fan. And many people look at me funny, you know, how can those things go together? Are you sure you're all one person, you know, kind of thing. And, um, and yet to me, Montgomery is the consummate advocate of imagination. Mm. Even though she doesn't work in a fantasy genre per se, she is such a fan of imaginative world, of authors who imagine, of readers who imagine, of readers who engage imaginatively with the works that they're reading and hearing, if we're talking oral storytelling. So for me, that was not too big a stretch. Okay, now... Should I transition to what I'm reading or did you want to respond to that? Well, yeah, I, I just, I don't know how not to respond. Like, I actually, <laughs> like, well, you know, if we think about genres, you know, the fantasy mm-hmm. genre wasn't really tied down quite as tightly a hundred mm-hmm. years ago, right? And was really a development from, you know, fairy tale and, you know, science fiction comes out of, you know, adventure tales and romance and everything else, right? Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, actually, you know, you know, Montgomery did write supernatural stories, especially mm-hmm, right, stories. among the shadows. Yeah, and the Emily series has a supernatural tinge to it. it does yeah, and I actually I I, I pushed at the last conference. I, I kind of think we can read Anne of Green Gables as a fairy tale in the sense that it is a gateway world, and uh, you have this mm-hmm. character that comes in and magically transforms a whole village. Well, so, and of- yeah. Yeah, I don't oh. know that she's that far to a uh, field, to be honest. And of course, and of course, Montgomery was fully entrenched in the whole Victorian fairy tale tradition. Yeah. And, you know, read everything. I have an early essay, one of my first published essays on Montgomery was on her engagement with oral narratives. And I talk a little bit in that essay on <clears throat> excuse me, the Victorian fairy tale tradition and how many fairy tales she knew and and would use, I still call them intertexts, if you want to say Easter eggs, you know, whatever yeah, term yeah, you want sure. to use, mashups, but, but she would interweave them into her work you know, so deftly. Hmm. And, and she was so well-versed in that tradition. And I think it's a little bit sad Sorry, I'm flashing back to some funny like Phineas and Ferb episodes about this. But I think it's a little bit sad that nowadays sci-fi and fantasy are treated almost as, you know, enemies, you know, rivals, right? Yeah. Whereas, whereas I think when you look at that Victorian fairy tradition, it's much more interwoven um, things that we see in sci-fi and things that we see in fantasy. And uh, and much less of a gender dichotomy 
in that era as well, that men would have freely and did read fairy tales and tell fairy stories. And it was not a stigmatized thing. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think it's absolutely right. And in fact, I suppose behind them all, and in, in not all, but behind them is in that folklore world is, you know, the word romance meant a lot more than we would use it today, right? And a lot different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah that's right. In fact, we have to, Montgomery would be one of the ones that brings the older tradition of romance with that kind of what we would call romance today um but she right. never leaves it right like for you know a tragedy is as important for anne as any mm-hmm. romantic conclusion to a story right because they're both romance with a quotations yeah. around them and she also does one of the things i actually loved about montgomery when i first read her is that she plays with and evades that little r romance as opposed to like capital r romance right that she plays with and evades that in some really delightful ways that you know Anne doesn't get married until what the fifth book i mean i guess fourth or fifth depending on whether you're reading chronologically in order of writing or chronologically in order of Anne's life Hmm. but but she, you know, she messes with the reader in some very fun ways about, oh, you want a marriage? Well, maybe not. <laughs> you know, you, want, you, sure you want that? Yeah. yeah, no, that's good. I mean, we may come back to kind of that question a, a little bit, a little bit further on, but I hate to go, go like too far afield like what sure i do want to so you did want to ask what i was reading (laughs) well you know we could we could talk about it just what you know what's a a, you know something that's on your bedside table nowadays i i actually used to be a monogamous reader where i would read Mm. one book start to finish and then start the next book and bookstagram has ruined me for that now i'm always reading five or six things at the same Mm. time so i was recently rereading jane austen's persuasion for an online book group I'm reading uh, Fall of Marigolds uh, by, I think it's Susan Meissner for what used to be my offline reading group that we now meet by Zoom. And um, so that's sort of what I would call contemporary book group fiction. And then um, given the light of political events in the United States in the last few months, I've been revisiting Ida B. Wells, who was someone that I taught very frequently when I was teaching African-American literature, American literature, women's literature. And then my latest pickup nonfiction is Stacey Abrams' Our Time Is Now, which talks about the need for voting equity in the United States and crucially important at this juncture. And then for fun, I have been reading Kate DiCamillo's, I'm I'm a tremendous Kate DiCamillo fan, and I've been reading her series with Alison McGee, um, Bink and Golly. And they're graphic novels for kids. So there's just a tiny bit of text on each page, and yet they're pitched in an audience much older than picture books. And it's this fascinating blend of text and image, and they're just fun. They're delightful and spare and yeah, just just a thrill to read. Gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Are you a KT Camilla fan at all? Well, no, my wife is. And my wife okay. is actually I actually it's I get lost in children's books and I'll just never kind of emerge again. But I'm also <laughs> sort of that polygamous reader in the sense that I have a bunch of things on the go. In in our pre kind of warm up, we've mentioned Harry Potter. Um, Always. Yeah, yeah. And and so I'm also reading 
uh, Nedi Okorafor. I just finished her Binti series, which is like a oh, sci-fi. Okay. I don't know that one. Yeah, take the uh, the Himba tribe of uh, Southwest Africa and then throw it forward in the future a few thousand years into a space time. Yeah, it's really kind of uh, it's actually it's a gorgeous a gorgeous series. I just finished um, very recently, but I'm on Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. I'm reading by paper, but I just last year went through the Stephen Fry audiobook version of Harry Potter, which I think is kind of brilliant actually so oh now i haven't heard stephen fry's version i oh. you know being in the states i was weaned on the jim dale um uh. audios of harry potter and i do really love those and so those mm. are familiar and comforting to me and i'm actually just re-listening to those right now uh part of our shelter in place thing has been to listen to audiobooks in the evening but i have this thing where i can only listen to audiobooks if i've already read the book in hard copy right of course so um so yeah we we did the whole lord of the rings series that way we did the stephen fry hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and now we're partway through the harry potter series which i've both read and listened to many times oh nice that's a that's a great, a great combination i mean you really kind of cover a century there now yeah. rob, rob rob inglis's hobbit he does what is <gasps> love he, that yeah but is it some terrible singing in the midst of it does he also do that in the lord of the rings i actually love the singing oh good in the there Hobbit. you go. you, yeah. you you do know, right, that Inglis studied Tolkien's speech patterns meticulously oh. awesome. so that he tries to sound like Tolkien when yeah. he reads it. And and for me, The Hobbit, I first heard his Hobbit and it was a revelation for me because the songs sounded exactly like I had heard them in my head when I was reading. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah. And absolutely. so I so to me it was like this, oh, you know, sun from the sky, you know, Cod's parting moment when I first heard him do those audio, the Hobbit audiobook, because it sounded like it sounded in my head. Wow. Now, unfortunately, I think with Lord of the Rings, some of the songs went way, way different than I had expected. And I didn't yeah. have that same connect. Yeah, <laughs> so. They're they're very more. Um, they're, I mean, they're both for folkloric, but the ones right. in Lord of the Rings are obviously much much more deeply uh, implicated with the story, right? So, yeah. Um, but of course, you you're one of your specialties is that oral the relationship mm -hmm. between the oral and writing, and so yeah. then of course folklore and fairy tale all pops into that. Right. But I know that too. You've been working on um, uh, literature of the Americas, mm -hmm. uh, and so you have you you've talked about this kind of breadth, right? You know the you know dark crystal meets I Montgomery. Tried. Yeah. Well, so so how did you then tumble onto uh, Montgomery? Were you a childhood reader, or did it come later for you? I was not a childhood reader, and you know as we're collecting people's quote unquote origin stories of Ella Montgomery, how they found Ella Montgomery for the Your LMM Story Project. Um, Kate Scarth, my co-leader in that project, and I often trade off sharing our stories. And she was a childhood reader of Montgomery. But mm -hmm. I was actually given Anne of the Island as a gift when I was going away to university because it's about a girl who was going away to university. Mm. And so my first and in some ways still my deepest connection with Montgomery is that she depicted girls who like to study, nerdy girls. Mm. And and as a nerd, as a geek, I was all over that. <laughs> I, you know, I loved that she embraced bookish girls, geeky girls, and gave us a voice and made that something that it was not only okay to be, but, you know, celebrated. 
Yeah. Wow. That's actually, I mean, kind of the perfect time to read that book. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I suppose yeah. like Montgomery has been dismissed as a juvenile writer, but it's mm -hmm. more than that. I mean, like the book you're talking about, Anna of the Island, we would call new adult fiction today. Nowadays. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, uh, you know, you first encountered her as an adult. She has, you know, that, you know, Anne of the Island, or her books include adulthood and especially mm -hmm. in the last half of her writing life. What are your thoughts kind of about that juvenile distinction for her and whether that limits or, or kind of opens things up? Well, I think thinking of Montgomery as a children's writer is a misnomer on two levels. First of all, it as someone who writes children's books, mm. it just makes me fume. You know, I'm having, I'm picturing the cartoon steam coming out of my ears right now yeah. that people think that that is somehow a lesser endeavor than writing quote unquote literature. Yeah. I would take any of the children's writers that I love, you know, Montgomery, Kate DiCamillo, Grace Lynn, um, I'm trying to think of other ones I read as a kid. I, uh, at the, as a kid, I loved Frances Hodgson Burnett, though, of course, there are some uncomfortable colonial issues there. But any of these writers, to me, I would hold up against any of the best, quote unquote, literary fiction and say, yes, they're doing something different, but they're doing something just as skilled and in some ways even more thoughtful, even more difficult. Yeah. So I, to I, dismiss I, children's fiction in the first place ticks me off, right? Yeah, and I I know you're you're on number one of like of a list here, and so I don't I don't want you to lose that, but I I just wanted to really agree, and you know I think of Tale of Despero is that um, which yes, is I think probably, yeah, and I think that's maybe the, the only one I read of her, but that has a kind of literary quality. Well, you know, and, you know. That that goes beyond, like so. Even if you were to say make the distinction, that's a false distinction. Uh, yeah. it, it comes from bad reading to say that of the genre. Like I mean, Emily exactly. Moon, you know, is a very literary. Um, exactly, uh, and and Katie Camillo was getting favorite, even though I don't think she was ever published in grown-up literary journals. She was getting favorable responses from places like the New Yorker and the Atlantic you know, for her sh adult short fiction before she turned to children's writing. And, and so it's not like she couldn't do that. It's, she's doing what she was meant to do. And her voice is, I think, simultaneously very literary mm. and also very childlike. And, and why we want to see those things at odds troubles me because of course in the 19th century you know louisa may alcott was reading Goethe when she was 12 you mm. know we we underestimate children too much in this era i think yeah good well done yeah and i um when c.s lewis was asked about writing for children he says that's precisely the problem like if you think of it as like a special genre a business mm -hmm. that you have to write to then you'll always talk down right um and he, he thought that children actually had more to teach adults and vice versa <laughs> and so he says you 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 write books for children because those are the kinds of books you like to read and write mm -hmm. and you write about what you like and you he said you go chest to chest man to man with a child uh, or else you'll always condescend and so i think the best children's books have that kind of quality of of you know the the entire enterprise is invitational and and you just kind of touched my heart with that quote because that's something i'm always endeavoring to do as mm -hmm 
maybe not with quite that metaphor, but <laughs> I'm always in that endeavoring to do that as a writer myself, that I, I don't write for some, you know, kind of mythic child out there. I write for the child that I was. Mm. And so I don't talk down to her, or at least, I mean, maybe sometimes I do inadvertently, because I also spent years as a teacher, but I would never purposefully talk down to her, because I value her. Yeah. And, and I think every child has that same potential. Mm. Yeah. And I think, I think you're right. We, and you, you, so I think you're, you're hundred percent right that if we, if we separate off children's fiction as a kind of genre fiction, that then is therefore, you know, sub quality, then we've mm -hmm. aired with Montgomery, but there was a kind of a second, um, second yes. tongue in that fork, right? Yes. That I also think it is a mistake to consider Montgomery as someone who is writing solely or primarily for children, that even if we value that endeavor, which clearly you and I both do, hmm. I still think that's not precisely what she was doing because I, and, and I'm thinking a little bit of the story girl here. It's one of her, I, I don't know. Does she ever, I'm thinking through all her books now. Does Montgomery ever use a first-person child narrator? And I don't think so. I think all her books are narrated from outside the child looking yeah. at them. I mean, the story and girl is told by, um, I can't remember which brother, Bev. but he's older when he's telling it, right? Right. It's yeah. Be it's Beverly uh, telling yeah. it, if I'm remembering correctly, Beverly telling it in retrospect yeah. as an adult, which to me, it, that's actually one of my favorite Montgomery books. The story girl and Anne of the Island are probably tied for me. And yet when I recommend it to people, I always caution them that in narration and tone, it's very different than many of her books because it has that retroactive nostalgia and that adult perspective is more overt. Whereas I feel like in Anne of Green Gables, even though it's told from outside of Anne, we, we're obviously encouraged to identify with Anne, yes. you know, very early. I was about to say from the get-go, but you know, no. it doesn't even start with Anne and with Rachel Lynn. Yeah. Right. And and I've also talked about this in one of my essays on the oral storytelling is that there's this kind of whole regional community, but also this oral storytelling community that's swapping tales before Anne gets there. And Anne, you know, bursts into it and mm -hmm. becomes its kind of best storyteller. But that community is just as important. And I think Montgomery is speaking to that community as much as she is to children. So to me, that community, wherever that community is out in the world, and there's hundreds of them, right? But for any adult who has that love of place, who has that love of storytelling, I think that, and, and I should also say landscape, that rich love of landscape, I think Montgomery resonates with all those people. One of the fun things about the um, live call-in show that Kate Scarth and I did uh, or surrounding the Your LMM Story Project is I, I think some of the people on the show were a little surprised how many grown men were calling in and like, I'm a huge Ann fan, <laughs> you know, I'm a huge Ann fan. And it, it actually didn't surprise me that much for that reason. Mm, yeah, no, that's that's brilliant. Why don't you actually? Why don't we take a moment here? Because I think I think you've um, you've beaten down two 
two false myths about (laughs) Montgomery's work. Um, And you've hinted at kind of a third one that I'd like to kind of tease out a little bit later. But the um the because i think myths are good you know my problem with calling things myths is i love mm-hmm. myths right you know and myths are very truth bound as you as mm-hmm. you mentioned in one of your pieces um and so i call them false myths or whatever or but, uh, i might call them misleading narratives misleading <laughs> narratives very well done and so one of the things that you're doing you've mentioned with kate scarth the um lm montgomery institute chair and everything else uh, this great uh lmm story lm montgomery story um would you just briefly touch on that we're we're going to leave um links for for people to be able to follow that up in the show notes but i i would like to invite people to do that Okay. Well, so the Your LMM Story Project, which is also, we have two or three working titles. It's also The World of Montgomery and Her Fans, or Your LMM, LM Montgomery Story. It's a bit your, of a... I was going to say, let me let me say it one more time without a stumble. Your well, it, L- is, it is actually, I mean, that's kind of one of the challenges, is it is a, a, alliteratively challenging. It right? is. Well, and, and Kate was teasing me the other day that when we do the <laughs> hashtags, she always <laughs> wants to just keep running with the M's, like your L-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-M-
answer a few demographic questions about themselves, mostly because that helps us sort the data and look for themes in the data that we want to talk about. Um, I got the feeling you wanted to talk about gender at some point, and that's one of the themes that we we may be looking at. And so that's the current project. We are in the process of collecting those stories, and we have already have rich and vibrant stories from all over the world. I think I, oh, I'd have to go back and double check, but I actually think every continent except, yeah, except the frozen one, yeah. I think every every continent that's populated is represented, and we want more of that. Brilliant. Yeah, no, that's gorgeous. And I actually, I, I love that you made the link too to your 2018 talk. And and I have to let listeners know this is uh, this is a very biased podcast <laughs> discussion because I hunted uh, Trina down because of her 20, 2018. It was a video presentation that she did for the LMMI conference in Charlottetown, and was really both thinking about text and readers of text and readers in text and all of that great stuff that was just mentioned. And I, and I just loved the talk. It, you, you, when you watch it, you'll see it's kind of warm and and very creative. And I think the core argument is sound. Um, and so, you know, are, are you able to? I have a further comment on it, but can you summarize just the the your basic argument about readers in and readers of for us? I can try. Um, yeah. But first, I'd, I'd also like to say I was so happy that you tracked me down because, of course, I wasn't there to yeah. see the response to the talk. And I was at home biting my nails like, you know, oh, is this wow. even going to work? You know, I had a yeah. couple moments of audience participation. I thought, oh, what if those fall flat? That's going to, you know, that's going <laughs> they, they, they Actually, they work pretty well. Uh, they're yeah. a little less, they're a little funny now, like a couple of years later, of course. But the, yeah. um, but did I, I don't remember, did I email right away? or? You, you, I think you sent me a Facebook message pretty yeah. fast after yeah. the conference. So when I got your message, it was a big like, whew, for me. Oh, yeah. um, because it was like, okay, you know, at least it didn't go over like a lead balloon. <laughs> it yeah. seems yeah. like it worked. But so my basic, um, my basic argument in that essay, trying to stretch my brain back two years, yeah. is was that, uh, of course, psychologically, and, you know, I do have a bachelor's in psych, but psychologically, we can't ever know for sure what's going on in the heads of readers as they read or as they listen. And even readers, even though now we're interested in hearing readers report on what they feel is going on in their heads, of course, they have a bias, right? They're they're reporting on their own experience. So, so you can never get a, a kind of pure answer about what's happening in a reader's head when they read. And And I don't know that we should try. I don't think any non-subjective answer is necessarily that useful. But I posit the possibility that Montgomery, in her work, depicts readers who then go on to become, well, first they form communities as readers. Mm. And, and I, that's actually something I hope to explore in more depth in a future paper. But then and as a bookstagrammer, that's near and dear to my heart. Mm -hmm. But um, but then they go on to become scholars and creators of different types, you know, writers or quilters or but but she depicts it as this kind of in in my analysis, I argue that she depicts it as this kind of interconnected process that being a reader somehow naturally unfolds into being a scholar and being a writer. 
And so as a scholar and a writer, that appealed to me greatly. And partly because she came into my life at a point where I was just beginning my first, you know, endeavor into my work. What will my work be as a grown-up? You know, what will what will my contribution to the planet be via career? And so the notion that she might have in some ways trained me without my knowing it to see my readerly self as naturally extending into scholarship and writing and making that journey seem natural and for women not only okay but you know glorious mm. um it, it really resonated with me and and i don't think you have to be a woman to respond to it in that way but i think she is doing it in some ways to address women in some particular regard and Sorry, now I'm kind of babbling, but I want to babble on one more thing. Um, I did an essay while I was in grad school, actually, for my Shakespeare class. Um, I had a fantastic Shakespeare professor, sadly now gone, who I went to him and said, hey, can I, can I depart from the topics and do something different? And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to look at how Ellen Montgomery adapts Shakespearean quotations and characters into her fiction. Mm -hmm. And he said, Oh, you know, my daughter's a big Ellen Montgomery fan. That sounds cool. Go ahead. And I did an essay that lives online now, but I'm not happy with the current version, (laughs) even though I'm still happy because I wrote it, you know, as a fledgling graduate student, Mm -hmm. but, um, but I'm happy with the core argument. Part of which is that when Montgomery adapts Shakespeare, she tends to take a lot of Shakespearean quotes that center on male experience and she recenters them on female experience, but she often uses it to endorse female education. Oh, interesting. And, and I think that that cannot be accidental, that she was trying to say higher education for women is not only, should not only be okay, it's a good thing. And we need to support it. And we know that she had some struggles trying to achieve higher education herself, both financial and resistance within the family. And so I found that out later. And that confirmed my view that I that I think she's a big advocate of education, particularly for women. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, with her gifts um, and where she came from, she would have been a minister or a scholar right oh er, early on um clearly and yeah. yet yeah. and yet i gotta be glad she went the way she went <laughs> you know? as it turns out yeah like uh, but she had to fight to get there so okay like a whole right. bunch of stuff here like i think first about like writers readers in books and so i think about you know lizzie bennett with her nose always in a book right you know joe march uh yes, you know, one of my favorites uh, jane from jane who wants to be the reader but of course that's mm-hmm. a challenge where she is and that's sometimes a, a theme in montgomery's books uh mm-hmm. you know hermione granger yes. um, yeah or even you know even you know Eustace scrub who lands in narnia but he's read the wrong books he's only read books on <laughs> economics and he's not read any books on dragons and so he's completely mm-hmm. or, or bravery so he's completely unprepared for a right. new world right so the the girl with the like for now a hundred years later the girl mm-hmm. with her nose in the book is a powerful image right mm-hmm. so was that different like a, like w- was there more like a um a readerly 
there was certainly a writerly space that was more male-defined a century ago. Was it also the readerly space also a bit more male-defined? Our engaging conversation with Trina continues in part two of this special Mod Gas feature. Mm-hmm.